You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. We're going to have a little Bible study, then we're going to do our baptism. Uh, You want to get your Bibles open to the book of John, chapter 8. And we are in a series titled, The Questions Jesus Asked. And we are looking at these life-giving, profound questions of Jesus. And if you're new with us in this series, you'll know this. This is part seven of the series. You know this, that Jesus never asked questions for his own benefit. Jesus asked questions to get us to think. To get us to realize that uh, our thinking might not be right. We might want to look at something through a new paradigm. And so these are the questions Jesus asked. In the Gospels, there are over 500 questions recorded that Jesus asked. All of them profound. We've looked at a bunch of them. Today we're looking at a question, uh, and I love this one. The question is found in John 8.10, and the question is, where are your accusers? Where are your accusers? We know that one of the hardest things to deal with in life is our guilt. And we know that we all have a lot of guilt to deal with. Why? Well, because we've made a lot of mistakes. Uh, We blow it. We do foolish things, and we've made so many mistakes in life that uh, the guilt is just there. Uh, We wish we were better. We wish we were kinder. We wish we were more selfless. We wish we were more winsome. We wish we were more considerate. We wish we were more thoughtful, and those are just mine, right? Uh, These are the things that we wish, and And uh, I love being around winsome people. And and when they say things, they just do it with tact. And and I think, oh, I'd love to be more like that. And and I tend to be so clumsy, you know. And and, uh, how many of you have just opened your mouth and then just regretted what you just said? Or or you hit that send button for that email and you're like, oh, Evey, what did I do? And uh, there's a great book, by the way, that I read one time, Before Hitting Send. Uh, Really good book. Uh, But we have these regrets. We have these mistakes that we've made. And the reason is because we're sinners. We've lied. We've cheated. We've been selfish. We've said cruel things. We've been egotistical. We've been boastful. We've sinned. And we've cheated. We've acted self-righteous. We've been hypocritical. We've hurt people that we love. We've hurt people that we hate. Uh, We've made all kinds of bad mistakes. We've made bad decisions. We've had abortions. We've had drunken episodes. We've had sexual encounters. We've had things that we deeply regret. We We haven't put God first. We haven't put our neighbor first. We put ourselves first. And these things cause guilt. And I want you to know something about guilt. Guilt destroys lives. Psychologists know this. And so they try to pin guilt on somebody else, your mother, your father, somebody else but you. It's not your fault. No, 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 it's your fault. That's a lie. We have guilt because we're guilty. And we know it. And we know it. And all of our sins and our failures accuse us. And we battle tremendous guilt. And a crazy thing happens in human psychology. You would think if you were guilty, you'd be more humble. But the exact opposite happens in human psychology. When we're guilty, you know what we do? We work hard at putting on a better front. 
a fake front. We try to impress others. We try to dazzle. We try to iron our clothes extra good so we look like we're all put together. And the reason we do it is because we're falling apart inside with guilt. And the paradox is crazy. When we are guilty, we act more self-righteous. It's the craziest thing in the world. And we put on a front. And unfortunately, this charade just puts gasoline on the fire. And it's amazing what we do. We see it all around us. We make our little Facebook shrines of self, our little Instagram shrine of self, and we try to portray this really perfect life. And the more guilty we are, the more we run down that lane. Very crazy. What we need more than anything is to have our guilt removed, to have our sins forgiven, and to have all our, our, our accusers sent away. And how often do we need this? Not one time, like on the day you get baptized. No, no, no. How often do we need this? Every day. Every day. Because our sins are there. There's not a day that goes by that you don't sin, that I don't sin. I hate to tell you. You say, are you kidding me? You're a pastor. Hey, sorry, hate to break it to you. There's not a day that goes by that I don't sin. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And in the Greek, it's in the present tense. It means all have sinned and are presently falling short of the glory of God. Uh, this is... Uh, our life and what we really need more than anything is to have our guilt removed and that's what today's lesson is all about this is what jesus came to do this is what jesus loves to do for us uh to remove our accusers and today we're going to see him do it in a woman's life in a powerful way open up to john 8 and let's pray as we open god's word how's the temp in here how many of you are too warm how many of you are just right Oh, the just rights have it. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> For all you women going through menopause who raised your hand because you're too warm, I'm sorry. <laughs> How to get in trouble in the first few minutes of a sermon. Here you go. <laughs> I told you. I sinned. I told you. Uh, uh, Lord, forgive me. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, we come before you. We thank you we can laugh together. We thank you, Lord, that we can look at deep and meaningful subjects like this, our guilt, and how to deal with it. Lord, we have a way that we like to deal with it, and we see that way is wrong. We want to say, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to impress others. And Lord, I know your path is different. You're, you're asking us to be honest with ourselves, just to be honest with ourselves and to be honest with you. And to bring our sin before you so you can cleanse us. And so, Lord, may you speak to us today. May your word be powerful in our ears and on our hearts. Help us to see you, Jesus, and to know you better. For this is why we're here. We want to know you. Bless us with yourself, Jesus. We ask it in your name. Amen. Amen. Chapter 8, verse 1. Jesus went up to the Mount of Olives. Now, early in the morning, he came again into the temple. And the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. How many of you would like to be at that teaching? Oh, my goodness. Can you imagine a Bible study with Jesus, the creator of the universe, the word who became flesh and dwelt among us, speaking the life-giving words of God? And here we see some things. He went out. Uh, to the Mount of Olives, and then early in the morning he went to the temple. So how early was he then at the Mount of Olives? It was very, very early at the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives was the place that Jesus would often go to to pray and to get time alone with God. If you've ever been to Israel, you know this, but for those of you who don't, uh, haven't been, it, uh, the Mount of Olives is just east of the Temple Mount. If you're on the Temple Mount looking east, you can see the Mount of Olives. It's only about two blocks away. You go down the Kadron Valley, and then you uh, come across, and then right up above is the Mount of Olives. And it was this beautiful garden that Jesus would often go to, uh, to just enjoy and to, to 
uh, pray and to spend time alone with God. And here before he goes to church, before he goes to the temple to teach, he's up early and he's praying. And, and uh, at, again, this favorite spot that he had. Because it was a favorite spot of Jesus, it's the, the location of a lot of important places, excuse me, a lot of important events that happened in the Bible. Uh, some, some of the events that happened there are the triumphal entry. When Jesus rode in on Palm Sunday on a donkey, he rode in through the Mount of Olives as he made his way to the temple. Uh, the uh, Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, where Jesus gathered all the disciples together and taught them about the end of the world, about the end times events, the events that are in Matthew 24, uh, amazing prophecies that are in there, and we're watching them come into fruition in our own day, our own generation right now. Just amazing. And Jesus taught that from the Mount of Olives. Uh, when Jesus was betrayed and arrested, it was there in the Mount of Olives, the night that he was arrested. When Jesus uh, resurrected and uh, spent 40 days showing himself to the different disciples and 40 days on earth, he then went to the Mount of Olives and it was there that he ascended up into heaven in radiant glory. And the disciples were with him as he ascended up into heaven and they were just sitting there awestruck, their mouths hanging open, and the angel comes to them and says, quit drooling. Uh, uh, okay, that's not in the Greek, but uh, uh, he did say, why do you continue looking up in heaven? This same Jesus is going to come in the same glory that he departed, and he's going to come to the same place. He's going to return in glory on the Mount of Olives. And so it is this spot where Jesus uh, came in the morning, and from there he prayed, and from there he then goes over the Kadron Valley into the Temple Mount and starts teaching. And he went into the temple to teach all the people. Can you imagine how inspiring, how life-giving a Bible study with Jesus would be? Uh, we read when Jesus spoke to people, lives were transformed. Uh, uh, they just were moved to the core. Jesus spoke and people's lives changed. And I tell you, I never tire of watching it happen. When you hear the voice of the Savior through the word of God or through the Holy Spirit moving in your heart and you know, begin to know Jesus, our lives just transform. And I never tire of watching it happen. Here we have this baptism. We're having a 35, 30-something people getting baptized today. I remember just about a month ago, we were... Uh, maybe a little longer, we were planning this baptism and, and we had just done one at Moonlight Beach and we had like, uh, I forget, like 48 or 58 people baptized. I forget what it was. And uh, we thought, well, should we do another one? We just did it. it was like, but you know what's happening? The Lord is always changing people's lives. And I never tire of watching it. I think of the woman at the well who was in a really messy situation, divorced five times, and now just living with a guy. And she comes and meets Jesus, and she walks away. And this was the words as she walks away. She runs into the town, and she says, come and meet a man who knew everything about me. And he still loved me. And he gave me new life, and he transformed my life. And she was telling everybody about Jesus. This is what Jesus does. When Jesus speaks, lives are transformed. His words invoke repentance. They bring light into our path. And we go, oh my gosh, I'm on the wrong path. What am I doing? This is so much better. And we turn from our ways that we might turn to his. That, by the way, is what the picture of baptism is today. It is this death of the old life, doing it my way. And being resurrected to a brand new way of thinking, a brand new way of life, no longer controlled by my way of thinking, but now led by the Spirit of God. And what you're going to see today is people were going to lower them into the grave, if you will, and resurrect them to a brand new life, a picture of what Jesus does inside us by his Spirit. When he speaks, lives are transformed. And the ancient prophets foretold that when the Messiah comes, this is what he's going to do. He's going to bring healing. He's going to bring transformation. He's going to bring new life. Uh, look at this verse in Isaiah 61. This was written 700 years before Jesus. Take a look at this verse with me. This, read with me out loud in a unified voice. 
The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has appointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. Let's stop there. You can see this is written as in first person of the Messiah. This is if it was Jesus speaking. The spirit of the Lord is upon me and the Lord has anointed me to preach. And what does he preach? Good tidings to the poor. Let's look at a couple words here. First, let's look at the poor. We're not talking about those who don't have any money, although them too. Or should I say us too? <laughs> but he's talking about those who are poor in spirit. What does poor in spirit mean? It means not being arrogant, not being proud, not thinking, oh, I've got it all figured out. No, being honest and going, I don't have it figured out. I need help. And here's what he says. He brings good tidings. Let's look at that word for a moment. What does good tidings mean? That means really good news. I've got really good news for those who don't have life all figured out. I've got really good news for those who don't think they're amazing. I've got really good news for those who are saying, God, I need help. Will you direct my life? And here's what he says. I've got good news. Uh, God has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. What is liberty to the captives? What's another synonym for liberty? Freedom. To bring freedom to the captives. And you say, what are you talking about, you old pastor? I'm not in bondage to anybody. I'm not in jail. What do you mean? I don't need freedom. Are you sure? Are you sure about that? Because you seem to have this angry tongue every time something goes that you don't like. And you seem to be in bondage to it. You seem to have this porn addiction that you can't seem to free yourself from. You seem to have to have that afternoon glass of wine that turns into another and another. You seem to have this uh, ego that when you go anywhere, it says, it's always about you. Are you sure you're not in bondage? You seem to have this thing that you have to be amazing. Are you sure you're not in bondage? You seem to hurt even the ones that you love. Are you sure you're not in bondage? Because if you'll humble yourself, I've got good news. I will bring liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And I will proclaim, read it with me. I will proclaim what? The acceptable year of the Lord. Uh, the acceptable season of the Lord. And the day of vengeance from our God. Jesus proclaimed both. This today is the day of salvation. If you will humble yourself and come before him and say, Lord, I need help. But if you refuse this Messiah, then he is a day of vengeance. You will stand before him and he will send you to hell. You say, what kind of God would send me to hell? A God who doesn't force you to have a relationship with him. Do you know what hell is? Hell is the place for those who don't want to be in a relationship with their creator. Who would not receive the gift of salvation. Who don't want to know him and be with him. He won't force you. And the place where he is not for eternity is hell. And so he proclaims both. And may we humble ourselves before him. This is what Jesus does. He's life-giving words. And all who speak to him are transformed. All who hear him, all who receive him are transformed. This is what he loves to do. Uh, look what else the prophet said, the rest of the verse. He comforts all who mourn. And he consoles those who mourn in Zion to give them beauty for ashes. What does that mean? Beauty for ashes? Can I hear from you? What does that mean? What does that mean? It means it turns an ugly mess into a beautiful masterpiece. Really good. Really good. It means he can take that anger, angry tongue that is beating the life out of your own children and he can soften you, dad, and turn you into an amazing father who breathes words of life into his children. 
He can take you from a nagging wife into a wife of beauty and stature, tender heart from the inside. He can bring beauty from ashes. And this is what he does. Oil of joy for the mourning that we have. The garment of praise where there once was a spirit of heaviness. And look why he does it. That they may be called, read it with me, what? Trees Trees of righteousness. I love this. The planting of Yahweh. He calls us trees of righteousness once we've come to him. Why? Because the image is something that is healthy and vibrant and unmovable in this solid foundation in which we stand, the grace of Jesus Christ. And he says, you're going to be like a tree of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. Our gardener is God. It's back to John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit unless it abides in the vine. And neither can you unless you abide in me. And you are the the trees of the Lord, man. The planting of the Lord. Trees of righteousness. And he does it all so that he may be glorified. That we look at our life and we look at what he's done and we just go, Lord, you're amazing. I can't believe what you have done with my life and what you have given to me. Your grace is astonishing. And so this is the work that Jesus does. And when he speaks, lives are transformed. It changes us. And this was what was happening. And all these people are coming to the temple to hear Jesus teach. And you know what? That made somebody really mad. You know who made really mad? The religious leaders of Jesus' day. They hated Jesus because everybody was coming to Jesus. And when they came to them, their lives were transformed. And nobody's life was transformed when they came to the religious leaders. And they were jealous. And so they did some things. They were trying to get rid of Jesus. In their hearts, they wanted to kill him already. They even hired Bouncers, heavy guards, right? To arrest Jesus so that they could have a mock trial and kill him. And take a look at what happened uh, when they hired these guards. Jump back a little bit to chapter 7, verse 45. These religious leaders hired these guards, these officers. Look at 745. Then the officers hired by the religious leaders to arrest Jesus came to the chief priest and to the Pharisees who said to them, why have you not brought him? Who's the him? Jesus. Jesus. Why haven't you brought us Jesus? We're paying you. You've been being paid for two months now, and we still don't have Jesus. Why haven't you brought Jesus to us? Look at verse 46. And the officers answered, read it out loud, no man ever spoke like this. Wow. What happened? They were hired to go arrest Jesus. They went to where he was teaching. They heard his teaching and they got saved. Their lives were transformed. And look at verse 47. The Pharisees answered them, are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? We don't believe in him. Look at verse 49. But this crowd who does not know the law is accursed. In other words, he just says, you guys are idiots. Uh, and, and, and look at this. Uh, Jesus was so, his words were so life-giving that when he spoke, it transformed all who spoke, he spoke to, even the guards that came to arrest him. Let's look at what happens in this story. Jesus is teaching in the temple, verse 3. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman was caught in the, in adultery, in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? They said this testing him, not because they cared about the woman. They said this testing Jesus, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear them. Interesting. Uh, Picture this in your mind. 
Uh, these corrupt religious leaders interrupt Jesus' life-giving Bible study to bring a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery and to bring her into the temple to Jesus for judgment. And I want you to see what is going on here. Imagine it's just like this. Jesus is teaching, like in a room like this. And here it is, he is, and all of us are just enthronged in his words. It's like he's speaking to me. It's like he knows me. His words. It's like I'm understanding things that I didn't understand. And my path is being illuminated. I want to change. I'm inspired to change. And in the midst of it all, the doors burst open. And these religious leaders in all their garb, in all their royal colors, their sashes of color, their different rankings, they all come in. And they're dragging with them a woman caught in the very act of adultery. What does that reveal about how the woman is dressed? Does she have a sheet wrapped around her? Does she have something scantily clad that she's there in? And imagine the shame. Imagine what she feels like. I mean, these are powerful religious leaders. And they're humiliating her. Imagine, it'd be bad enough just to be caught, but now imagine you're caught in front of Billy Graham. You're just like, oh my gosh, like what the heck, right? Uh, no offense to Billy Graham, by the way. Um, and they come running into this Bible study where Jesus is giving these life-giving words. And Jesus is speaking and lives are being reborn. People are coming to life. People are being transformed. They come in and what do they want to bring? Death. They want her to be judged and to be killed. And it's so interesting, the paradox. Jesus wants us to have life. And religious hypocrites want to bring judgment. And not much has changed in the world today. Here they come in, interrupt this thing, and they do this, not because they care for the woman, but they do this because they want to trap Jesus. So messed up. I want you to see something about human nature right now. I want you to see something about ourselves. Apart from Jesus, like these religious leaders were, apart from Jesus, we are opportuni I can't say it, opportunistic and self-seeking. We will use people just to get what we want. We will, we will use someone just to advance our position in something. And we do it not because we care about others. Who are we serving? Ourselves. And it's crazy that this is our human nature. And do you know when it started? It started when you were a child. You didn't have a swimming pool in your backyard. And your neighbor had a swimming pool in the backyard. So guess who you wanted to be friends with? I want to be friend with my neighbor because he's got a pool. And it's not about being friends with your neighbor. Who's it all for? It's for you. You want to swim in this pool. And then we go to high school and we go through an awkward stage. We got some pimples on our face. We look pretty dorky, and we want to hang out with the hip, cool people. We want to hang out with the athletes or with the cheerleaders or with the whatever it is today. I don't know, but we, and it's not really about them. We just want to be what? Cool. We just want to be cool. And can I tell you something? It doesn't end when we're children. It doesn't end in high school. It keeps going. Even as adults, uh, this selfishness does not go away. Adults use people all the time to advance their career, to advance their business. I've seen business people, real estate agents, others come to church, not to see Jesus, but to network 
Network. And guess what I do as a pastor when I find those people? You repent or you get out. This isn't a place to network for your business. Uh, How sad that we would do this. It happens all over the place. It happens in Hollywood. It happens in government. It happens even in marriages. Even in friendships. And even in church. I've seen pastors favoring rich people hoping that somehow they can glean from their wealth to be invited into their home or to be divided on their trip to Aspen or to somehow fly in their Learjet or in their boat or whatever or to get them as a donor. And it's not about them. What's it about? Apart from Jesus, say it with me. We are... Wow. I don't say that to have you be a puppet. I say that to get this understood about who we are. Because this is what makes us say, Jesus, I need you. And if we are poor in spirit, well, then he wants to save us and deliver us. I love that about Jesus. And when we come to him poor in spirit, he changes us. And something happens powerful in our life. Jesus changes us. And abiding in Christ, we are transformed. We become altruistic and selfless. We are born again. What a major change. What a paradigm shift. When a person truly enters into a relationship with Jesus, Jesus changes them. Something divine happens. And we quit seeing people as objects to be used for our selfish gain. And we begin to actually love and care about other people. That's why if you're a young woman in this church, know this. The best thing that you can do is not look for a guy who's super handsome. Look for a guy who really walks with Jesus. See a single gal going. Why? Because then and only then will you be loved for you and not for what he can get out of you. And guys, vice versa. Don't merely look at merely outward beauty so you can get all what you want. No, that's the wrong paradigm. Uh, Look at the inner heart, the beautiful woman of a gentle spirit. Uh, That is an amazing thing. Um, Just as I've seen businessmen come to the church, not looking for Jesus, but looking to network. Well, I've seen singles coming to church, not looking for Jesus. (laughs) And may I remind you what Jesus said. And by the way, when they do, they come loaded for bear. They, you know, they're dressed to the nines and looking like, you know, uh, wrong motive, wrong motive. May I remind you what Jesus said? Seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness. And all these other things will be added unto you. You just seek me. I'll take care of all those things. I don't know how he does it, but I'm in awe of how he does it. I've never lacked Jesus has provided for me since the day I gave my life to him. And I went from being a businessman to being a pastor. And I'm amazed at how Jesus has just taken care of all of the needs. Uh, I'm beyond blessed. And that is not something unique to me. It's something amazing about Jesus. This is what he does. And so when a person truly enters into a relationship with Jesus, it changes them. And it really is, is awesome. And it's what makes real fellowship with real Christians so beautiful and so unique. Last night at the pickleball place, you know, we had rented out the entire facility and uh, I played in the tournament and I lost to Matt and Tara and, and uh, then I went and played in the, in the other courts and I just thought, this is amazing, this whole place and I can walk on any court and just feel loved and cared for and just have so much fun. Not because someone needs a partner. But just because you're actually cared for. They're real relationships. And I tell you, I marvel at the relationships that we have here in the family of the church of Jesus Christ. It's such a beautiful thing.
And there's a ver- these are these relationships. They are the they are the they're amazing. They're like the joy of my life. I'm so thankful for my friends that I have in Christ. And there's a verse that I've memorized that that it just capsules this so encapsulates this so good. It's Psalm 16. Uh, I have it on your screens for you. Take a look at this. Uh, read with me the top the top one. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. You know who wrote that? King David. And he's the king of Israel. Do you think people might come to the king for an ulterior motive ever? Uh, Yeah, probably a lot, right? And here's what David would say. You know what what I delight in? You know, as for me, uh, the saints who are on the earth, they're the excellent ones in whom I delight. A paraphrase of that verse is below. Uh, the godly people in the land are my true heroes. They're the ones I take pleasure in, right? And I have found the same thing. Uh, put me in a room with a person who really walks with God, and man, it is just an amazing place to be. I love being with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, so rewarding. Uh, these amazing relationships that are, that are transparent and full of grace. Uh, we read in the Bible, David and Jonathan had that kind of relationship. Before David was king, Jonathan was heir to the throne. His father was King Saul, and he was to be the next king of Israel, Jonathan was. But Jonathan recognized that God's spirit was upon David, and that God's anointing was upon David, and that God had you raised David, and, and Jonathan didn't say, well, then, man, I'm going to try to get David. No, he said, uh, here is my royal jacket. The king's son's jacket, the heir to the throne. David, this belongs to you, for God's hand is upon you. As for the saints of the earth, these are the excellent ones in whom my soul delights. Beautiful, beautiful passage. Uh, These religious leaders uh, had not been changed. When Jesus changes us, man, and abiding in Christ, we are altruistic. We are selfless. But these religious leaders had not been transformed by Jesus, and they look pretty ugly. And this is who we are apart from Christ. And apart from Christ, we use people for our own selfish gain. And this time, the person being used is the woman caught in the act of adultery. She means nothing to them. Uh, she, they don't care about her at all. They are simply using her and religion to advance their own agenda. And look at this powerful scheme that these religious leaders came up with. This brilliant plan to trap Jesus. They had this scheme. Would Jesus condemn the woman and uphold the Mosaic law? Would he say, oh, she was caught in adultery? She needs to be stoned. If she did, then all the people would quit following Jesus. Or would Jesus evade the issue and by doing so condone the woman's sin? If he did that, they could say, Jesus is a false teacher, and they could have Jesus stoned. Either way, they thought, we've come up with this perfect scheme. It's diabolical, but it's a perfect scheme. And here Jesus is put in this situation. What in the world will he do? He cares about this woman. He also sees the selfishness and the self-righteousness of these religious leaders. And he sees the the clever, evil trap that they've set. What will Jesus do? Take a look at this. Jesus does something so brilliant. It is absolutely absolutely genius. Uh, Look at verse 6 one more time. They said this, testing him, that they might have something to which to accuse him. But Jesus, he doesn't even answer them at all. Instead, he stoops down and writes on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear them. Verse 7. So when they continued asking him, in other words, they got angry. They're, they're, they got evil in their hearts. They're like, Jesus, we're talking to you. Answer us. This woman was caught in the very act. We've got stones in our hand. The law says capital punishment for adultery. You got your word, Jesus. We will stone her. What do you say? We want an answer from you. And they ask him again, verse 7. 
Jesus, he's been riding in the ground. He hasn't said one word to them. He raised himself up and he says to them, the first word Jesus says in this whole thing. Again, this was a Bible study going on, right? First word he says, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Wow. How genius. How wise. How profound. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Just goes back to writing on the ground. And he doesn't argue, doesn't wrestle. Look what he does. Just goes back to writing on the ground. And those who heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one. Look at this. Beginning at the oldest, even to the last, or to the youngest. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. The Bible doesn't tell us what Jesus wrote. But by the, what happened, we can infer uh, something maybe that happened. Because what happened to each one of the guys standing there? They were convicted of their own sins. So I wonder what he wrote in the ground. From oldest to youngest. Why oldest to youngest? Because they got a lot more sin, right? And Jesus starts with the oldest, and he writes in the ground. What did he write? I don't know. Maybe it was www.hotbabe.com. And the oldest religious leader walks away. And then he writes, January 12th, Susie Johnson. And the next religious leader walks away. And then he writes, April 15th, tax return. $25,000 in cheating. And the next religious leader walks away. And then he writes, December 4th, you cheated your own brother. And the next guy, what did he write? I don't know. But whatever it was, it convicted them and they leave one by one. And look at the story. Verse 10 when Jesus had raised himself up, he saw no, <clears throat> and saw no one but the woman. He said to her, where are those accusers of yours? There's our question Jesus asked. How powerful. And uh, wouldn't you have loved to hear the voice inflection? Where are those accusers of yours? And she looks up and she sa- he says, has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, Lord. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Wow, just amazing. I don't know about you, but I can see this scene playing out like a movie. Jesus teaching this Bible study. People are getting saved. Lives are being transformed. Hearts are being filled with awe of God. And in come these religious leaders, all their royal garb, dragging this woman. She's ashamed. Uh, They set her up in front of Jesus. They've got rocks in hand. The law demands capital punishment. What do you say, Jesus? Answer us. Answer us. And Jesus, interestingly, never even speaks a word. He's just riding in the ground. And they yell at him again. He tells them, he who is without sin, let him throw the first stone. And they start going. Now this woman, she's scantily clad. She's been caught in the act. She's waiting for rocks to hit her. If you've ever seen any videos of, even in the Middle East today, these husbands who cane their wives publicly in Islam, it is so hypocritical. It is so perverse. And women have no rights. And there she is in this state, right, just waiting for rocks. And she's got her hands over her head trying to protect herself. And Jesus' first words to her are, woman, where are your accusers? And I can see her all crunched down, looking up and being shocked. Where are they? They're all gone. They've all left. And then she looks at the only holy man there. And he says, neither do I accuse you. Now go and sin no more. You're forgiven. Rejoice in the love of God for you. And go and sin no more. Go live a new life for him. How amazing. How beautiful. As we discussed in the beginning, 
failure and guilt are some of the hardest things to deal with in life. Because we've all made so many mistakes, so many sins, so many selfish decisions. And these sins of our past accuse us and condemn us. And the guilt that all of our failure brings is suffocating. It destroys us from within in ways that we don't even understand. And our our psychological makeup, we start doing things that we don't even understand. And I want you to know, our guilt is the impetus of many of these behavioral disorders that we have. Behavioral disorders like anxiety and depression and self-esteem issues and addictions and porn and alcohol and weed and drugs and a myriad shopping and a myriad of other vices, right? Uh, The issue is this guilt in our life. And what we need more than anything is to have our sins forgiven and our guilt removed. And that is what Jesus loves to do. This is the work he wants to do. And Jesus heals our life by forgiving us of all of our sins. Think about that sentence, uh, being forgiven of our sin. What an amazing, amazing gift that is. And this is why God became a man and dwelt among us. And went to a cross on our behalf so that he might be able to forgive us of our sin by taking all of our sin on his own back, dying in our place that he might forgive us. And this again was prophesied that this is what the Messiah would do. Uh, That same prophet Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus, said this in Isaiah 63. Uh, Take a look at this. All we, excuse me, 53, all we like sheep have gone astray from God. We have turned everyone to his own sinful way, and the Lord has laid on him, that's Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Jesus wants to forgive us of all of our sins. That's how he heals us. And it's amazing to be forgiven. In addition to that, he cleanses us of all of our guilt. It would be more than enough just to be forgiven, would it not? But he then cleanses us of all of our guilt. Every sin that I've ever committed has been placed upon Jesus. And all the requirements of God's law have been fulfilled for me on my behalf by Jesus. And that means I'm free. The theological term for this, for number two, is called justified. And it means more than being forgiven. It means being made just as if you had never sinned. That's a big difference. That's a removal of all guilt. You can be forgiven and still carry guilt. Well, I forgive you, but I still remember what you did to me. O.J. Simpson was forgiven, right? He got out of prison. He was not justified, right? Uh, He was not cleansed. Jesus doesn't just forgive us. He justifies us. He cleanses us. And how powerful that is. Uh, The third thing that he does is he removes all of our accusers. What he did for this woman in that setting is a picture of what he does for all of us. How does he do it? Well, let me ask you this. What are your accusers? Do you know what your accusers are? Your accuser is God's law. That you do not measure up to. And you don't even have to read the Bible to know God's law to still have that accuser. Because God's law is written on your heart. It is the moral law. And Romans talks, Romans chapter 1 and 2 talk uh, two chapters about this moral law of God written on our hearts. Uh, Everywhere you go, every society, every culture that's ever been, a traitor is despised. Do you know why? Because this moral law is written on our hearts. Cheating is despised because this moral law is written on our hearts. And this moral law is always accusing us of all of our failures. Every time I lie, I go, oh, wasn't supposed to lie. Every time I'm selfish, oh, it wasn't, because that moral law accuses me. And how does Jesus then remove all of our accusers from us? Well, here's how. All the requirements of the law have been met on our behalf through Jesus Christ. He takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness. And that's what this baptism is a picture of today. 
We are being buried, our old life done away. Our sin being buried with Christ. And we're being resurrected in his perfect righteousness. Not by what we do, but by what, by what he does for us. And when that happens, our life is transformed. We no longer go around trying to impress everybody because we're not standing here in our own righteousness. It's his righteousness. And now humility can come into us. And it works just the opposite of what we would think. This is the freedom that we have in Christ. He removes all of our accusers. The Bible says, uh, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Just amazing. Um, look at this verse in Romans 8.31, uh, and then we'll do the baptism. Uh, read this verse 31 with me. If God is for us, who can be against us? Let's pause there for a second. What's the answer to that question? No one. If God says you're made righteous, who can be against you? It doesn't matter. If the teacher says you're getting an A in the class, what does it matter if the kid in the, in the seat next to you says, you're not doing good in the class? Who cares? The teacher says, I'm getting an A. And this is what we have in Jesus Christ. If God is for us, who can be against us? Answer, no one. If God did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, will he not also freely give us all things? And the answer, absolutely. If Jesus went to the cross for you, do you not think he'll give you all things? Of course he will. Let's go on to the rest of it. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? No one. Why? Because it's God who justifies. And if God justifies you, then you can't have any charges brought against you. Who can condemn us? Well, it's Christ who died and rose and is even now sitting at the right hand of God making intercession for us. Uh, in other words, he removes all of our accusers. There are none. And what that woman experienced is what all of us experience in Jesus Christ. She was ready for stones to hit her. She knew she deserved it. And Jesus says, woman, where are your accusers? She looked up, and they're all gone. And he says, neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. This is our freedom in Jesus Christ. How amazing. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.